MFs, welcome back. Hustle like you broke. Today, Thursday, July 16, should be airing around the 28th. Almost two weeks removed from the 4th. And of course, you know what that means. My co-host Kyle's favorite word, Spike. Bring it out a little early today, sir. Kyle, what do you think of that, my friend? <laughs> okay, you got uh, it's, it's, uh, we got some sparks flying. We got some spikes. It's on, my friend. It's uh, on. You, 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 not to say that anybody's winning or losing, but you, you won this particular round. <laughs> well, I will take it, and I appreciate it. But as I say, airing around the 28th, by then we will know what has come out of the 4th. 28th also means, for anyone keeping track, that it is after the official start of the Major League Baseball season. More on that shortly. Groundhog Day abounds. U.S. has reached the point in the movie where we need to change our behaviors in more and different ways. Forever going to get past this. Took a while for Bill Murray. Seems to be taking a while for the rest of us. I really do recommend anyone that hasn't seen the movie. Do so. ASAP. Really does speak to the state of the world. If you've seen it before, see it again. You seen it, Dallas? I don't believe I have. Come on, Dallas. We are living in that movie right now. Banks. I know. Not my cup of tea. Have you seen it, Banks? Pucks of Tony Phil. Come on. I've definitely seen it. Exactly. Dallas, please, please do your homework. Please. You know, who's in it again? Oh, my goodness. Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, Chris yeah. Elliott. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I'll, I'll put it on my list. I've got plenty of time. I'll it's add it to my list. Yes. I'm Nothing but time. Speaking of time, for those who say you've been cooped up inside for X number of months already, I want to ask you today to really think about this. Have we? Have we really? Have we really done everything we need to do to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem? I see posts on social media from people I know claiming this whole thing is still a hoax, which blows my mind. One woman in particular, her son is the same age as mine. They go to the same summer rec program which for me begs the question, should I be sending my son? Am I not actually following the prescribed method of getting past this thing? I'm not going to waste too much time today railing against ignorance or the willful blindness of those who think this is some political conspiracy. I have no interest in doing that today. I just suggest you please, anyone, everyone who doesn't know what's going on in the world, consider this handy-dandy little tool some call the Google. Search COVID-19 in any country other than the U.S. You will see this shit is happening all across the globe. But I digress. 
No, I'll keep going. I was talking to a friend yesterday who said he's been stuck in Thailand since the beginning of March. I think actually some of my guests know this person, though I won't expose him. He was a prominent radio host in Boston for a number of years. In Thailand, they are preparing to reopen. They have a total population of just under 70 million people and only 58 reported deaths. 58 out of 70 million. Think about that. We in the US have 328 million people and 138,000 deaths. And we are raging, or should I say winning, If proportionally we had the same as they, we would have 272 total. I'm just going to leave that right there. And I'll move on. In the good news category, there's actually clinical trials happening right now. And I won't name the company. I don't know if there's any implications of saying I have stock in this company, anything like that. I don't want to go there. But they completed a round of trials. 45 out of 45 test subjects came back immune. So fingers crossed. There is good news coming. As for concert news, speaking of our department, I chuckle at that a little bit because there really isn't much to report. I will say in Germany, they are testing events of up to 1,000 people. Promoters are clustering groups, four to a box, come with your friends, stay separate. They figured out the access, the egress, the bathrooms, the concessions. Kudos to them. I know Chappelle has actually hosted two events where he did something similar. First, the comedy show 846 that I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to check out. One word of caution, love Chappelle. One of my favorite all time. 846, not a comedy. He also hosted a music festival on the 4th, and I don't expect there to be any sort of spike coming out of that. Kyle, will you disagree with me? Um, no. Thank you. <laughs> Elsewhere. <laughs> Moving on. Elsewhere in the world... Australia has announced they're testing nightclub concerts with distancing measures. I wish them huge success. Pray for all involved, promoters, staff, artists, patrons, everybody. I pray it is such a resounding success they can provide a blueprint for the rest of us. I know that they are adapting certain provisions from uh, Digby's organization. What was it again? Why am I blanking on that? Dallas, Kyle, Chris, somebody tell me. Anyone? Safety Alliance. Yeah, Safety Alliance. That's what it is. ESA, Event Safety Alliance, thank you. Was escaping me. My apologies. Jim, please call me. Whip me for uh, missing that. But shout out to you in the ESA. On the other hand, a developing story today, the UK in the UK, Live Nation just canceled their drive-in concert series, which is a bit of an ominous sign. 
I know that Live Nation has only just recently announced a small number that they would be doing here in the US. I'm hopeful for those. One more bit of concert news that I feel the need to report on. The band Great White did a low-key show, No Distancing, in North, Carol North Dakota, excuse me. Far be it from that band to learn their lesson about packing people into tight spaces. At least it was outdoors. Apologies to today's guest. I promised I would avoid cursing, but to Great White, I really want to extend a resounding fuck you for not learning your lesson from the immense tragedy that it caused years ago, known as the Station Fire in Warwick, Rhode Island, near not only to my home, to that of today's guests. In better news, Live Nation rolled out plans to incre increase diversity by 2025, starting with their board of directors. And kudos to them for taking action. Big shout out to Rapino and everyone on the board there. Very much appreciate your leadership. That is a tremendous step. Fact remains, most major corporations across the globe lack minority and female board representation. And it's the only way. It is the only path forward if equality will truly ever be achieved. So shout out again to Live Nation. I appreciate you. But truth be told, that's really the, all the concert news I have. So instead, we'll do what we so often do, and we'll turn to the world of sports. Because sports is the indicator of when we might return to work. And in the NFL, Nine-figure contracts are increasingly normal. Anybody got a comment on Mahomes and his $500 million potential? Kyle, I know you got something to say about that. Uh, not yet. I'm going to let you breathe a little bit. <laughs> Banks, want to jump in? Uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. It's a lot of money. And he seems Dallas. to be already celebrating and enjoying his money already, as we see from his pictures. I mean, $500 million, who wouldn't be? But he hasn't been wearing a mask in those pictures, has he? Excellent question. My point. But at least in the NFL, they're acting like we're going to have a full season with fans. And lest anyone forgets, by the time of this episode airing, we will be three weeks away from preseason games. Elsewhere in sports, the NBA is set to resume, albeit in a bubble, in Orlando on July 30th, just days after this episode's airing. One of its greats, Russell Westbrook, just tested positive for COVID-19. Sorry for him. I'm sorry for his family. I'm sorry for the Houston organization. Certainly begs questions what the NBA is going to look like when it comes back. But soccer's back strong and, and seemingly stronger than ever. And I mean, kudos to soccer, football, whatever you call, call it. Huge fan. So glad to see 
play happening on the field. So happy to see very few cases popping up out of it, at least from what I've seen. And soccer's just, I mean, soccer's always been the strongest sport in the world, second to cricket. There's the, there are those who would argue it is increasingly taking over America's pastime, which again, references our guests today, who I will be bringing out in just a couple minutes. Because Major League Baseball, as I said, is coming back in less than two weeks. We'll be back within days of our taping, of our airing, excuse me. First games played on July 23rd, my home team, Boston Red Sox, first game on July 24th against the Baltimore Orioles. I know I will be watching. Which brings us to today's guest. Now, here at Hustle Like You Broke, we have made diversity a part of our platform since day one. Not only do we bring out diverse guests from time to time, but we are actually a diverse group of hosts and with our guests always. But up until now, we've always stuck with people in the concert industry, which listeners that have had me heard, heard me acknowledge more than once, sticking too closely to the concert industry is part of my own pre-COVID failing as a professional who thought he had a diverse platform functioning in a variety of roles with a variety of clients, but always in the live concert space. So today we introduce two guests who cross over between concerts and sports, both of them representing, again, my home team, the Boston Red Sox. She has been affiliated with the team going back to 2002, currently serves as the director of concerts and entertainment, he has been in Major League Baseball for 42 years, including 35 with the Sox. He's also been involved with a wide range of philanthropic efforts I want to call attention to, focused on autism, focused on people with developmental dis excuse me, disabilities. And in 2006, he was the recipient of the Spirit of Compassion Compassion Award. I don't know why I can't speak today, people. I'm sorry. I'm going to say this again. In 2006, he was the recipient of the Spirit of Compassion Award by the Massachusetts Association of Mental Health. And by the by, we hear from guest after guest on this podcast about the need for more compassion in our industry moving forward and in the world. And we speak about mental health issues frequently. So kudos to him. He currently serves as the Senior Vice President of Concerts and Entertainment. Together, they have overseen an incredible schedule of events at Fenway Park that I've been very fortunate to see a number of. We're talking about Bruce Springsteen, the Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, Billy Joel, Zach Brown Band, Aerosmith, Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake, who at least one of my co-hosts was on tour with at the time. 
as well as one of the greatest spectacles I have ever seen on a concert stage, Roger Waters' The Wall. Please welcome Beth Crudis and Larry Cancro to the program. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank Thanks you for having us. Now, I do want to let our listeners know that Beth is actually not only working remotely, but is currently on a satellite circling Mars. So she's a little bit further away than the rest. But Beth, speak up. Let's make sure we can hear you. How are you doing today? I am doing great, thank you. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. We appreciate you being with us. I will say, Beth, you came to us by way of Mike Marchetti from Live Nation in Boston, who came to me by way of Bobby Schneider, production manager, who is a friend to all of us, who is recently on the program. Anybody that hasn't heard that podcast, it's an amazing two-part, honestly one of our best. And I want to give a shout out to Bobby because I made the mistake of referring to Bobby as an Oakland A's fan on the program. And I know because he lives in Oakland that he takes in a lot of A's games. And that's why I forgot that he is actually historically also a Boston Red Sox fan. So Bobby, shout out to you. Another shout out to the Sox. Thank you for helping me find Beth, bringing her and Larry on the program today. Appreciate you guys. And Beth, Larry, I'd love for both of you to tell us a little more about your backgrounds before we jump into it. And Beth, you for starters, my understanding is that it was actually a homeless person who influenced your decision to join the team. So can you tell us a little about that and a little about yourself? Oh, sure. Um, I started um, my career at the Red Sox in 2002 as what they call one of the Fenway Ambassadors. Um, that was a program that was started by our, um, our new and current ownership. And uh, it was basically a part-time position at the Red Sox that, um, you know, had you as part of the fan services department. And I tried out to become a Fenway ambassador back in 2002. Um, there was a, just an ad in a Boston newspaper saying the Red Sox are hiring. And they were looking for people who would sort of be the front line of their fan services department. So the people who would really interact with all the fans, answer phone calls, be out there in the community. So I applied for the position. Um, I believe there were about 3,500 or so applicants for 25 positions. And um, it was a really unique process. It started in May of 2002, and it and I ended up getting hired for that particular position um, probably around the end of August in 2002. And that was a part-time position that I held for two years and eventually knew that I really wanted to stay working for the Red Sox full-time, and Larry had a position open up. So in May of 2004, I interviewed with Larry, and, um, you know, sometimes these things take a little while. And uh, so while I was part-time, I ended up taking a, a full-time position um, working with the state of Massachusetts on their Click It or Ticket program. And I was still part-time working for the Red Sox. And uh, it was in August of 2004 that Larry reached out to say, please call me. Please get in touch with me. I want to talk to you about the position that you interviewed for. 
And I waited a little bit because I was so certain that he was going to tell me I didn't get the job because I thought, oh, he would have told me by now. And so I finally called him and I was in Boston Common and I called him and I said, hey, Larry, it's Beth. And uh, he was actually taking out the trash and um, he said, oh, you know, I just wanted to offer you the position. I wanted to see if you'd be interested. And I knew that I really wanted to do it, but I had just committed to this job with the state and I was a little nervous about having just started there and leaving again. So I called two people while I was sitting there. I called my mom, who I call all the time and always look to her for advice. And after I spoke with her, I talked to um, one of my best friends who used to work at the Red Sox, who had started out with me as a Fenway ambassador. I explained to both of them that I finally got in a full-time offer from the Red Sox, and I was pretty sure I wanted to do it, but I wasn't positive. And when I hung up, I turned, and there was this lovely gentleman sitting there, a complete stranger, and he just looked at me, and he shrugged, and he said, if I was you, I would take the Red Sox job. And I thought it kind of was one of those moments where I knew I was going to do it. Two people I really trusted had just told me, but just had this feeling like, wow, you know what? This is the universe definitely telling me that I should take this job. And it's the best decision. I wish I knew this man's name. I wish I could find him because I would, I would offer him tickets to Fenway anytime he wanted to come. And I just want to throw out there for anybody listening in, if you wish to impersonate this homeless person, you better have proof. Oh, but he was such a nice man, and we got to talking a little bit, and uh, it, to me, it was sort of like this divine intervention moment where somebody just happened to be there that I didn't even realize was sitting there the entire time, and uh, and I, I was definitely going to most likely say yes anyway, but I'm just so happy that I did. Well, sounds like a great decision to me. Got to admit, a little bit of envy. I've always said working in sports was something I had to do at some point in my life. Uh, if a homeless person had told me I needed to take this job, I, I probably would too. <laughs> and Larry, let's move over to you. So, And I just want to tell our viewers real quick, not only have you been in concerts and in sports for 42 years, but you are also the creator of Wally the Green Monster. And you introduced fan favorite song Sweet Caroline and Dirty Water at Fenway Park. I mean, one might say you have had a pivotal role in the life and times of Sox fans everywhere. So thanks to you. Well, th thank you. It's nice for you to mention. You know, it's kind of funny. As you were uh, doing your uh, opening monologue, um, I was starting to think, gee, if you hang around long enough, you see quite a few things. There were a few things you mentioned that I wish I could have interrupted and commented on, but you were talking about Groundhog Day. Well, um, I, I was a part owner, very, very small part owner of a minor league baseball team, and one of my partners was Bill Murray. And, uh, and we had this minor league team that was an independent team, and Roger Kahn, who's a famous sports writer, wrote a book about a season where we happen to win the championship and the book's called good enough to dream. But, um, 
you know, that was one of the interesting experiences from my years in baseball. Another one, you mentioned Pat Mahomes. Well, I remember him running around. I think he was like four or five years old when his dad pitched for the Red Sox. And uh, uh, so it's it's kind of interesting. You if you're if you hang around for long enough, you see quite a few interesting things. And there were one or two other things you mentioned, but I didn't jot those two down. But um, you you see plenty if you hang around long enough. Well, I think I tend to think that you know the socks are also kind of the center of the universe, and I'm sure our my co-hosts, two of whom are from the Los Angeles area, and and Christine Dallas being from Miami might disagree, but I will also point out that my big break, my first actual legitimate break in the concert industry that led me to where I am, was actually courtesy of a gentleman named Mark Lev who at the time worked for the Fenway Sports Group. And we developed together a series of Verizon Wireless-sponsored college tours, which kind of set my path to producing tours, to promoting tours, to you know taking on larger roles and, and doing all the things I've done over the years. So again, it, it all circles around the Boston Red Sox. And, uh, you know, there it is. But but Larry, tell us. So you you were part owner of this team. You've, again, been with the Sox for so long. I mean, how did this happen? And, and how is it that you and your position were able to essentially be the guy that said, we need to be doing these major concerts at Fenway, which of course has led to all of these legendary performers, the biggest in the world, performing in your ballpark. So, um, growing up, uh, my 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 central interest in life was baseball. I also came to love hockey. I loved all four sports, but in order, it was baseball, hockey, and. Um, probably basketball and football in that order, but, but I loved all four sports. And then my other main interest was music. And then beyond that, not much else. Um, and so, you know, my mother wanted me to be a doctor, but that wasn't even on the list of things I, I could be interested in. So, um, so I had this, this notion that I wanted to, to promote the things I loved, you know, and so I really wanted to promote baseball and, um, and all my life, I had these ideas on how to do it, but it wasn't a job. I mean, I kept telling people what I wanted to do, and people would say it wasn't a job. But the advent of free agency in the 70s <clears throat> meant that baseball had to change the way it approached bringing in fans. And in other words, they needed to start promoting. And at the time that I graduated college, uh, they started to need people with ideas like the ones I had been thinking about my whole life. And so uh, I was lucky enough to, to leave, leave college and basically get into baseball almost immediately. Um, I don't want to prolong that story. Um, but I, um, I was able to work one year in the minor leagues for the Jersey Indians, which was a double A team for Oakland. Uh, Ricky Henderson was our center fielder. It was a rewarding experience. I didn't make enough money to cover my gas from home to the ballpark in a Fiat that got me 40 miles to the gallon. And yet I did not ever want to give up this kind of work. So I knew it was for me. 
I went to the baseball winter meetings. I got a job with the Atlanta Braves and I kept progressing. I got into merchandise there. And, um, and this was before baseball was as big into licensing and merchandise as it, as it is now. And I was, I was in the center of baseball chaining its licensing and merchandising. And then, and then from that work, I got recruited to the Red Sox where I wanted to work in the first place. I went to Boston University. Uh, I went, you know, 1,600 miles and back to get a job down the block where I could see my old dorm room from my office. And, um, and so I was happy. I was never unhappy at the Braves, but my wife and I always wanted to um, land in Boston. And so um, from there, I started on this, um, uh, on this new endeavor. And the Red Sox, who were a very traditional organization, realized that now in this new world with uh, this competitive nature to get players and everything else, you also had to be more competitive about getting fans and getting staff and everything else. And that's part of where I came in. And so I started bringing some new things to the Red Sox. Um, just to get to the point of your question, when the team was sold in 2002, um, they asked, does anybody know anything about concerts? Well, during all those years I worked in baseball, um, I was um, part of a group of people that always tried to invite people on tour to come to the ballpark and have a respite when they were on tour. Um, in my Braves days, we all came to understand that people needed a break from the road. And I got to know a lot of people that were touring personnel, including some people in the acts. But touring the touring people are way more than just the people in on the stage. And so I got to know a lot of people in, in that in that regard. But in addition, um, when I came back to Boston, uh, one of my first loves was Boston University hockey. And I, I got acquainted with one of my best friends, Don Law, who's one of the biggest people um, in the music, live music industry, and certainly the biggest in Boston. And he and I became hockey buddies. And that's how we knew each other for quite a number of years. And at one point, we tried to do a concert at Fenway, but the old drainage system and other things made it impossible. But when the new ownership came and said, does anybody know how we could possibly get a concert into Fenway Park. I raised my hand and they said, see what you can do. And I called Don and I called a couple of my touring friends that um, liked coming to the ballpark on a regular basis. And that's really how the whole thing got started. That's the short version. And that was pretty long. So, <laughs> so that's how it all happened. Well, I love it, and I hope our, our listeners can already understand the crossover between sports and entertainment. And, of course, we speak for, as we say, the hustlers, the behind-the-scenes people. So thank you for your acknowledgement of them. Thank you for your recognition. We had Patrick Dearson on the program, a great designer, recently reference how most people think that the crew is essentially the guy in a ratty t-shirt and a pair of shorts who runs up on stage and drops a mic stand every once in a while and doesn't know anything beyond that. So you're, you're 
your recognition, the fact that you've taken care of them at the park so often is greatly appreciated. But, but let me push you on it a little further. Having seen both sides much more and much better than any of, any of us ever have, and, and both of you feel free to chime in with this one, I'm just curious if you can tell us about some of the commonalities that you've witnessed between sports and concerts. Well, Matt, uh, the one thing I'd like to mention is there's an old joke that isn't so much a joke as you might think. They all say that all this, um, the athletes want to be rock stars and all the rock stars want to be athletes. For sure. and, um, and that really goes into the touring crowd and the front office, et cetera. I mean, John Henry, Tom Werner, uh, back in the earlier years, Larry Lucchino, when he was our CEO, and now Sam Kennedy, who's our CEO, they they all have a great love for music and the concert business. And what I find is that so many people in the concert business are equally enthralled with the baseball business. I know people that are tour managers that think it would be great to be uh, a traveling secretary at a baseball team, which is kind of the corresponding job. Um, so I think people are very um, interested in the commonalities uh, of these businesses and find it so interesting. And um, my own daughter started her career working uh, at a sports team and, um, and, then, and then went uh, to work for Live Nation. And uh, one day, very early in her days at Live Nation, she said to me, you know, Dad, the businesses are really the same, except, at, you know, in the music business, the players play music instead of playing sports. And I'm like, yeah, it's really kind of true. Well, it, I mean, I, I said before, I always want to work in sports myself. So I, I have to echo that. And uh, I think you couldn't be more right. What about you, Beth? Any contribution here? Yeah, I agree with everything that Larry said. And also, it's just really fun when we bring an act around, if we have somebody coming in for a game, to see the excitement of a lot of our players and our owners and people in our office. Um, because it's like they, they sort of get it and they understand what it's like to have people admire you and really want to meet you. And so they really take the time to kind of go out of their way to, to get to know each other and talk to each other. And it's pretty cool when you can bring somebody in down into the dugout or into the clubhouse or somewhere to meet a player. And it's this huge, huge name, this rock star, and they're sort of speechless. And then on the flip side, you see somebody who's this incredible MVP who everybody wants to know, and they are the same. They're so excited. And one of the things that I love is when we have a band come in and they've either never been to Fenway or they're, you know, they've only seen glimpses of it. And they walk out and they see what the ballpark looks like and they are so excited to be there. And it's so great because we know they've been all around the world and they've gone to so many cool places and they want to see the inside of the green monster and they want to know if they can take some of the infield dirt home with them and they want to play catch with their kids or, you know, with their bandmates and, and things like that. And um, it's just, it's really cool. It's like the, the sports side of it really 
admires and respects and loves the the music side of it and the music side of it reciprocates. So I feel like Larry and I are so lucky and I don't think we take that for granted that there's two things that are so exciting to be able to be a part of and we get a chance to sort of be a part of both, which is um, something I hope that we don't ever take for granted. Well, I love that. Now, sticking with the same theme of commonality, but also some of the differences, you know, as we talked about, sports are coming back. Major League Baseball is coming back. Sox home opener, first game of the regular season, July 24th. Now, we know that music can't happen in the same way as sports can with the television only or streaming only audience. Although you guys did push the limit on that. And I know I watched the Dropkick Murphys straight out of Fenway event. Yeah. With 9 million other people. Yeah. 9 million other people. <laughs> so there it is. I mean, talk to us about how you see, or if you see more of the events like that happening and or if there are any other lessons we can learn from Major League Baseball about how to come back. Here, here's how I would um, say it. I, I think we can all learn from each other. And the, the easiest thing in the world to do would be to do nothing and just wait until somebody said everything's perfect and everything's okay. Because... But but then we don't know when that's going to be. Nobody knows when that's going to be. And, you know, some people say, oh, it's going to be when there's a vaccine. But they don't even know when that's going to be or if that'll work perfectly or if that'll work for everybody. So my theory, my, my basic premise is we should all experiment a little and see what's safe and see what we can do and see how we can edge towards a better day each day. And if we try a few things and those things work and we can edge a little further, I think that's to everybody's benefit. And so, um, you know, because because doing nothing has um, has its own negatives. It puts people out of work. It makes people depressed. It 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 does it does damage of a different kind. So I think I think we should all dedicate ourselves to trying to do the best we can to do our jobs in society. I mean, I really thought baseball, um, you know, wearing two hats, baseball and music, I think getting baseball games on TV is going to help some people have a distraction each day. Baseball is unique among sports in that it's an everyday sport. You wake up, something happens, you go to bed tomorrow, another thing happens. And, um, um, and I think it's important for people to have distractions to get their minds off negative things. And um, and so I think the entertainment and sports industry as a whole provides that for people. And so, you know, um, it, it's 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 a different form of therapy. And and so but but by the same token, it's an economic engine. It provides jobs for people. It provides uh, an opportunity for people to work in various ways. And if we just sit tight, it's going to be a lot longer before we cure those ills. So I think, I think edging our way forward um, is the way to go. But some people 
uh, don't understand what edging means. They, they, you know, they, they, they want to jump in with both feet and, you know, and start with 50,000 people. There's, there's ways to take any particular ballpark and have people sitting six feet apart and have them exit slowly. I said ballpark, but stadium venue, um, particularly outdoor venues where you're much less likely to have an issue. And we ought to experiment with those things. And um, I've, I've probably made my point here. <laughs> I, lo- I love what you're saying, Larry, about the idea of that. But I find in our culture, we are not very good or the general public are not very good about reading the signs, following the rules and adhering to those things will make it. I mean, just now in our current climate, we can't get people to wear masks that we know we should be wearing. You know, I live in Miami. We're backwards now. We're going back. You know, we've gone back four months, it seems, to the start of this because now we're in the red zone. We're the epicenter. And it's just to me, I've seen it. You know, I've been a lifeguard half my life. I've walked around pools. I've been security. I've done venues. I've done the whole thing. And the one thing I know about people is they're not, and in particularly in this day and age, they're not keen to follow the rules. I love hearing what you're saying. I've seen it happen in Japan, in other cultures. When people are told to walk a certain way, they do it. You watch a release a stadium show in Japan. They release them by um, different zones. They follow the rules. But it's inherent in their culture to follow the rules. We somehow don't seem to be able or capable of doing that. How yeah, do you change that, that idea? Yeah, let's turn that into a question. So how, how then you – I referenced in the – intro that in Germany they're doing boxes of four. Now, of course, baseball stadiums have boxes. Is there a path that you can see to experimenting with that, Larry, where people, I mean, going into a baseball stadium, if you have to wear a mask, you have to wear a mask. If you don't, I trust security will say, sorry, you got to go. So do you see a path to that experiment happening? And is that this season? Is that next season? Well, again, I'm I mean, just to be clear, I'm not in charge of these things, so I'm just speaking about Fair this enough. in a hypothetical. But, um, you know, to Christine's point, culturally, we're not exactly like some of these other places. However, I see two, two, two things. One is the message does not come across clearly um, about things like masks. For instance, first Fauci said you don't need to wear them. Then he said, you do need to wear them. And people are, you know, people's reaction is, well, which one is it? I don't get it. I I don't like wearing it. I'm going to go with his first comment. Um, So people need to understand that messaging is important and that it needs to be consistent. And don't say anything till you know for sure which message you want to send. The second thing I think is when you're talking about a venue, um, it's, it's easier than when you're talking about the public on the street, because you can say, if you want to come in and see this event, you can only do it with your mask on and you're not staying if you take your mask off. That people understand. And um, and I think it has to be clear and it has to be, um, you know, well, well stated like that. Uh, but what's happening is you know, Americans, they, they sit there and they look things up and there's conflicting uh, mask research and one thing and another. And so that's why I say in a venue, you can say, I don't care what the mask research is. This is how we're doing it here. You, if you want to come, that's a caveat of you entering this venue. 
Now, you just raised another interesting issue, though, and, and in my opinion, the biggest issue, which is not just the ability to enforce rules and enforce distancing inside the venue, but it's also a matter of what happens outside the venue, because, of course, the largest congregations of people coming in and out of Fenway and any other city venue in particular, I mean, they're all city venues, but I'm talking about the ones that are right downtown. It's the congregations of people, the inability to avoid people. You're not just within six feet. You are literally rubbing up against them as you are walking in and out. I mean, I realize this isn't your job and there's got to be some way that we can secure this. But I mean, just looking at the concert industry, do you think that there is a way to make that work? Well, I'm not a doctor and don't pretend to be, but um or a researcher, but, you know, I've been reading a ton of it because I guess we all have, or many of us have. It seems to me that the interesting thing about this, this quandary we're all in vis-a-vis COVID-19 is, um, you know, we're, we're all, we're all scared and we've, and, and we're all fearful. But the data does tell us a lot of stuff. For, for instance, like there's this debate right now about returning kids to school. But I, th- I think the numbers of kids that have gotten uh, sick or died from this are extraordinarily low. And the number of people um, that have gotten sick un- under age 60 in the country are extraordinarily low. And I think what this has been about that we have not done well is is um, is separating out the people that are uh, most vulnerable from the people that are not. Like, I would like to say to people, if you're 60 or over, coming to a venue right now is not a smart thing to do. And, um, you know, you can't, you can't ban them from doing it, but it's really not a smart thing to do. It's also not smart to ride the subway or a number of other things, because this is a disease that's, that attacks certain people, uh, you know, age-wise and comorbidity-wise. And um, if you could get people to use their common sense and and decide whether they're in those groups, I I am. That's why I'm in the basement. Uh, um, you know, I think people could um, do better, and we could return some things back to uh, a better sense of normalcy. Well, I like that. I like the way you're thinking and certainly appreciate it. I I, I would add to that, of course, part of the concern is that the less vulnerable might carry the COVID. They might be asymptomatic, but they, or they might just have mild symptoms, but they might just infect an older population. But again, to your point, you put two weeks between that or what have you in order to distance and give, you know, the disease, the time to work its course or what what have you. Again, I don't know the science here, but I do believe there is a path, there is a way if people want to go to an event, if they're safe and responsible and take the necessary amount of time before reconnecting with vulnerable family, that that is an option. And, uh, and, and I'll just leave that alone because you also referenced rather humorously that you are home working in your basement. And we talked about Beth being on a satellite circulating Mars, thus she being so far away. Um, I'm curious about 
working remotely, how that's been for you guys. And then I'm also curious about my biggest concern about the music industry coming back, which does translate to baseball, isn't just the ability to host an event in front of an empty stadium, but the fact that there is substantial travel required between the dates. And and on a related note, the proximity to one another that the not only the players, but the working professionals or in the concert industry, the artist and the crew are to one another as they are moving from place to place and whether that makes us more vulnerable as opposed to simply being able to do it in your home ballpark in front of, you know, in front of no audience, in front of a television audience instead of a live audience. Beth, you want to talk to us about working remotely and also about the prospect of travel? Sure. Um, I I wish that you could see what my view is from where I am right now because I live very close. <laughs> I wish we could hear you. Oh, can you hear me now? <laughs> can you hear me now? No. Definitely yelling would help, please. <laughs> um, okay, so I um, I live minutes away from the ballpark. I, I look out and basically every view from every part of my apartment looks directly at Fenway Park. And I joke around that my nightlight is the sicko sign because, um, you know, it's just on all the time at night. And uh, so for me, it's really weird because my home office actually looks directly at our office and I can see everything that's going on during the day. I can't see the games happening, but I can actually see a little into the ballpark. And, um, you know, it's been really unique because I, I know that I'm working from home, but I still kind of feel like I'm very connected to Fenway because I'm right here in the neighborhood. And um, what's really strange for me is I've lived in this same building for the past 13 years, right in the Fenway neighborhood. And this is the first summer where it's kind of quiet and we don't have people walking by and, you know, huge groups of people and we don't have concerts happening and stuff. So um, that's taken a little bit of an adjustment, but uh, I think, you know, we're a pretty small department. Um, there's there's me, there's Larry, we have uh, an assistant, and then we have someone who um, also helps us out seasonally. And we've really stayed well connected. I never did a Zoom before this all happened. And, um, you know, I've never done so many Zooms ever. Uh, and that has kept us well connected. And, you know, it's interesting. And, you know, we know people all around the world and they're all kind of dealing with the same concert stuff. So we try to stay connected with everyone, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but probably not so much for me just because I still do feel very connected being close to the ballpark. But poor Larry is there in his uh, basement most of the time. So, so Matt, regarding your question about, um, about the safety of touring and whatnot, keep in mind that the, you know, while we're at home, uh, for half the games, we have to travel to other ballparks for half. And, um, and so I think that, that for the concert industry, we'll be able to pass along a number of lessons from that. I can tell you this, our facilities department has done an outstanding job and has gone over the top, making sure that um, the ballpark 
is disease free and is, um, you know, su- supposedly we've been recognized throughout the baseball industry for having done the best job of, um, you know, making our ballpark uh, COVID-19 prepared. And um, so hopefully everybody is doing that, you know, in baseball and, and, and setting high standards. And now the travel will start. And hopefully we do that with buses, planes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what we learn in this short 60 day season uh, will hopefully translate into the touring season next year for uh, acts that want to perform on the road. Um, I do think, I do think there's a general benefit uh, to the fact that most um, most of baseball is played outdoors, uh, you know, and most of the, the dome stadiums are retractable. So you can play outdoors. I think being outdoors is much better for the general health of people than uh, in the COVID-19 era than being indoors. But um, generally speaking, I think we will be able to translate what we learn uh, to the concert industry because at the end of the day, it's uh, it's the same sort of thing. Travel, um, go into a venue, stay there for a certain period of time, travel again. And I think I, I'm not as worried about hotels as some people are, but I do think um, uh, I do think you it's best to maintain your own buses if possible, planes if possible, um, because um, you want to make sure that that's all cleaned up to your specifications, I think. Well, and, and of course, I agree that there is overlap and lessons to be learned there. And certainly figuring out a hybrid model of touring personnel and support personnel to ensure that the artists or ball players are staying safe and, and essentially staying in a bubble and, and able to make those transitions and uh, make it all work. I, I certainly look forward to learning from Major League Baseball and hope it's a resounding success. One related question before I move on, are the ball players and the support staff wearing masks in proximity to one another? Not so much on the playing field during games, but otherwise. But we're not there. Um, but, but what we've required. seen is that we don't expose the players to the press. The press are, are on a Zoom call, you know, in a post-game situation. Okay. In other words, we're minimizing the exposures of people to people. I think our staff is all on, uh, all wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Isn't that right, Beth? Yes, yes. In fact, um, I walk by the entrance that staff goes in every day and there's a sign that very distinctly says that you need to be wearing a mask there and anything that you see on social media or anything, everybody's um, extremely safe. Well, that's what I'm hoping to hear. And again, I hope that it is a resounding success and provides a blueprint for those of us in the concert space. Now, in a semi-related note, but shifting gears, I mentioned before the Dropkick Murphys streaming out of Fenway. Larry, you told us that that reached 9 million people. So I'm curious, where in baseball you go from ballpark to ballpark because one team is always playing against another from somewhere else and you need to be able to go back and forth for sake of home field advantage and what have you. 
in touring, that's of course not a thing if there isn't an audience. An artist can be seen, streamed from anywhere, which begs the question, do you envision more concerts like the Dropkicks with no audience? Or do you see artists touring during this pandemic and, and doing events in empty stadiums elsewhere? What, what do you see as a sensible method? And do you have anything else in the works that you can tell us about? Well, um, my immediate reaction is that um, the, the Dropkicks did two very unique events pretty quickly in this uh, whole pandemic. And, um, and that's one of the reasons that they were as successful as they were. What, what I'm noticing and what others in the industry have noticed is that you can do these things, you can do them a couple of times, and then they start to get passe very quickly and people are looking for the next better thing. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure you can do exactly that sort of thing again, unless it has a new twist. However, if this were to go on for three years, I think people would take a show any way they can get it um, because people do miss, you know, what music brings to their lives. Of course, there's a lot of shows that have been taped with crowds that could be just replayed, too. I, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, I, what I think is going to be damaged is the up and coming artist who doesn't have the opportunity to play in front of people and get to be known. Um, but, you know, we were able to do uh, a couple good shows um, that raised money for charity. I mean, the dropkick show, I've, I've lost count after we um, passed three quarters of a million dollars, but we had three charities that benefited in a big way from that show. Um, now we are going to do a stream next week, as a matter of fact, of a number of artists that have played Fenway or, or about to, we're, we're about to play Fenway and, um, it's just going to be like a one hour show with each, um, artist doing one or two or maybe three songs. And, uh, we're hoping to debut that the middle of the next week, but, um, but it's not it's not a single act doing a whole show. Um, so I don't know how many more things we'll do, but but, I, you know, it's not going to be the centerpiece of our our business. Uh, and again, that's just for charity. Copy that. So shifting gear slightly, Larry, you are also a past chairman of the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau. And Beth, you also have experience in your capacity working with the Sox, dealing with the, uh, the tourism department in the city of Boston and what have you. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts, just general thoughts, separate from sports and entertainment per se, but thoughts on what's happening in the world and, and what we need to do to make things better, not only here in Boston, but elsewhere. Um, I'll start. I I think here in Boston, uh, people are so ready to to get out and do things. Um, I think from what I've heard lately, 
Massachusetts is doing fairly well, knock on wood, um, with their numbers. And I think a lot of that is because people were following a lot of the rules. They were doing the social distancing. They were wearing the masks. Um, and I'm seeing slowly things are starting to happen again. Um, I know that like the Boston Duck Tours just started uh, a couple days ago, and I've actually seen quite a few of them going around. And uh, as more and more of the, the restaurants open up and um, people are going and doing a little bit more of the outdoor seating and things like that, um, to me, that's very encouraging and it's very promising. Um, it's a little bit difficult, though, because sometimes when you watch the news, you see right now in other parts of the country, things seem to be going a little bit backwards. And um, I think it's so important to keep moving forward and trying to, to safely get people out there doing new things. Um, one of the things that Larry and I are very passionate about is making sure that our neighborhood um, is able to survive. And, you know, that's all the time. We really, one of the things we love about doing the concerts and being involved with the, the um, Red Sox is that there's a very unique neighborhood that we're in the middle of. And so many people rely on what we do for us um, for them to do well. And so, you know, I'm very, very excited for the day that all of these restaurants and all of these shops that are in my neighborhood can be open again and people can freely go out there. And, um, you know, I just keep hoping that people keep following these rules and they're doing what they're supposed to do, but also that we don't just sort of halt. Um, I think it's it's very crucial to our business and to our industry that people keep talking about when things are going to open and when we're going to be able to safely go back out to places because I get really excited when I hear something is is opening up and um, that people are kind of venturing out. And, and I think I just get text after text. In fact, I've gotten three texts while we've been on this um, podcast, and it's just people saying, I miss live music so much. And so anything we can do to get people out and get people doing it so that we can prove that eventually it's going to be safe for people to be able to do things like go to our games and go to shows, I think that's just the most important thing. Hey, Beth, that sounds um, in that vein, I guess. One of my big questions to you is what's your biggest headache when you do have artists in the venue? Or maybe it's a bigger headache for Larry, but trying to meet their dressing room requirements and bag of house needs. Um, how challenging is that? Um, you know, I think one of our favorite things to do, and Larry can jump in on this too, is to challenge ourselves to make these artists and not just them, but their families feel as absolutely comfortable as possible at Fenway. Um, we always want them to leave saying, that is the best place I've ever played. I felt at home. I've learned a lot from Larry over the years. And one of the things that he taught me was that, you know, when when an artist is on the road, um, they really want some sort of sense of normalcy and they want to feel comfortable. And so that's really what our goal is. And so we try to meet as many of their expectations as we can. Um, the ballpark does a really good job of just sort of welcoming people and, and people are just excited to be there. But, um, you know, I, I think we people always say like, oh, who was really demanding or who was difficult? And, and we've actually been very lucky. Um, I think we, we, not just me and Larry, but the entire ballpark staff 
just really try to make everybody feel very welcome. And, um, you know, we are also very lucky, as I was saying, in our neighborhood here, we have had a couple of instances. And one story that I always tell is that we had a, a performer flying in and he wanted to get um, a really good haircut before the show and we have a great barber shop right here in the neighborhood some guys that are in bands and um, we were able to just get one of those barbers to come up to the ballpark and take care of this artist and it's just little things like that that we really try to do to keep people happy and and make them want to come back and another thing that I think is key is taking care of their families. Um, I think there's nothing more important to these artists than when they're out on the road to make sure that their significant others or their parents or their children feel comfortable and are having a good time where they are. And uh, we've, we're very lucky to be at a ballpark because most of the time families are really excited to be there. So um, that's what we do. We haven't really faced, knock on wood, any any major challenges with any of those backstage requests yet. I don't know, Larry, if you have any stories on that. No, but no the, the thing I want to add is that after the first year, which everything was a surprise to us uh, the first time we did it, we realized that it was an old facility. I mean, when they built it in, in 1912, nobody anticipated what it would look like to have a concert, you know, after the year 2000. And it was tough to load it in. It was tough to get, you know, the space the way you wanted, the comforts for a, a touring um, band and touring personnel. And so Beth and I sat down in year two, which was her first year, and we said, how do we make it so that everybody is more comfortable? Um, and so we, we tried to streamline things. We tried to make it easier for everybody. The tour accountant, um, the, the people coming, Beth mentioned the families. We wanted all of them to feel like this is the place I want to be. And over time, that became our reputation. And we've, we've had acts that take two days off before their shows at Fenway because their, fem their family wants to hang around and go in the Green Monster and take a tour of the ballpark and see things in the Boston area because they've come to feel so at home there. And that's what that's kind of like our mantra to make this an oasis on the tour. And, um, you know, so whatever little things are not ideal, and there's many of them, they almost don't see those things anymore because they're so thrilled with this, the, you know, the special amenities that we're able to provide for them. Well, we appreciate your focus on the little things. Those of us who do spend our lives on the road will tell you the little things make all the difference in the world. So thank you for that. You guys have been fantastic. Uh, we usually, I mean, we've, we've surpassed our hour mark already, so I could keep going and I'd love to poke fun about soccer versus baseball. Let me throw that at you real quick, but then we'll just move into our quick hits. Again, you guys have been amazing. What do you think of what I said before? Joking, but my son is an active soccer player, plays club ball. It is all year round. The, the fields are popping up pristine all over, all, over the, 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 all over the country, all across the region here in the Northeast. Beautiful fields, money getting sunk into soccer like never before. Is soccer becoming America's pastime? Um, I, it's hard for me to say that, um, per se, I, I used to simply say that soccer is the cheapest sport in the world to run. Um, 
and and that speaks a lot to its worldwide popularity. But you know, maybe it's more than that. I don't know. Um, I have a I have a lot of trouble watching it myself. But you know, by the same token, uh, Fenway Sports Group owns one of the most popular uh, soccer football clubs in the world uh, in Liverpool football club. So it's, you know, it's a changing dynamic worldwide. I think it's interesting that many Americans that do follow professional uh, soccer follow it outside of the country versus inside. It hasn't taken hold professionally here in the same way. I'm not sure why, but um, the thing I'll say is I'm proud of the product we've provided here in baseball. And I think, best way to handle something like that is to mind your own store and not worry about the next guy's store. So (laughs) fair enough. And touche. I appreciate that. I I will say, I think the reason that many of us favor other sports leagues overseas as opposed to home is because the reality is the best players are still overseas and it's usually later in their careers they come here as their skill sets are still perhaps at or near the end of their prime, but often past it as well. I, I would also say I'm increasingly of the opinion, and I'm, I, I like to point out to people that say they have trouble watching soccer, that soccer is effectively hockey on turf instead of on ice. So Except no rebounds. No rebound. Well, but but the same level of hitting, the same level of aggression, the same pass play, sometimes more pass play in terms of setup and what have you. But again, I'll leave that alone. Uh, Minding one store. I appreciate that. Of course, as an avid Sox fan, I say Boston Red Sox are a world class organization. Fenway Park is the greatest in the world. I have been to sports stadiums across the globe, really. And nowhere else in the U.S., especially with the exception of Boston and New York, and to a certain extent, Philadelphia, do you really see fans that really are as passionate as in Pittsburgh, maybe, Uh, and not not in baseball, though. I'm sorry. Let me take that back. Um, where, Where there really is that level of passion for their team and the energy in the stadium. I've walked up to stadiums elsewhere around the country where teams are in first place in their division. And you can literally just walk up to the box office and they say, what section do you want to be in? And it's like, what? Really? Um, At Fenway, that's not really a thing. Uh, But it speaks to the quality of product. It speaks to the job that you guys have done in terms of making the game fun, bringing people to the stands. Kudos again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being with us. I really appreciate you highlighting that some of the commonalities between sports and entertainment. I really think the overlap runs deep, that the model that you set will be, you know, really illuminating and and hopefully beneficial to getting those of us that are out of work in the concert industry back to work sooner than later. So moving into our quick hits, we usually ask about a first and a, or a favorite tour. Of course, without being able to speak to time on the road, uh, can you point to a single favorite tour, favorite event, uh, and, and also the first one that you've done that was done in Fenway Park? Go ahead, Beth. Oh, okay. Um, so 
still. Oh, uh, she uh, seems like, further away than ever. She oh. must be on the backside of Mars at this point, uh -oh. further and can, further. Can Sorry you hear for now? that. Can she can she round the planet quickly and speak up a little bit, or should we just have Larry answer? No better. Okay. Unfortunately not. Larry, how about you jump in? Okay. Well, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, but it's kind of, it, it, my, my, my answer is generally like um, your children. You know, I, I don't have any favorite children. I, I come to enjoy every show in its own way, and I enjoy working with artists, even ones that I'm not a fan of, on their way in. You know, I, I can't explain it, but there's something very exhilarating about working with people that are artistic and and whatnot. Now, there are a couple of shows that stick out. And I, know, I know Beth always likes to mention, so I'll speak for her. Um, the, the Rolling Stones shows that we did, it was the first two shows on their tour that started in 2005. at the largest stage in the world at that time. It, it was really incredible. It was an unbelievable experience. And you mentioned, I think, uh, uh, Matt, um, you, you mentioned um, the Roger Waters wall tour. Uh, the technology on that was beyond belief. But um, if you take away those two things that, that are technology oriented, um, musically speaking, almost every one of these shows is very rewarding. I mean, to me, the one thing that's that that I have in common with that and games is when you see fans leaving happy, it doesn't really matter what 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 happened, what transpired on the stage. Um, that's kind of what we're in the business for, to make people happy and see that they leave uh, in a better mood maybe than they came in. And uh, it's a it's a really exhilarating experience, no matter how many times you've had it. Yeah, I love that. And of course speaks to concert touring as well. So one more tough one. So I always ask the concert professionals if there's any one thing they would change about the concert industry moving forward, what would that be? I'm curious looking at the sports business, if you could draw a parallel, or you can answer it simply about your experience with concerts, but if it was applicable to sports, but crossed over, I would love to know what that is. Huh. I know when we first got in the business, what we wanted was to uh, make stages lighter and faster to um, build and take out. And that's happened in the time that we've been doing this. So my biggest wish has come true. Um, I would say, um, I would say it, it would be great to have more lead time to plan everything. You know, um, it would be nice to have your baseball schedules early, nice to have everything uh, nice and neat on your concert schedule early and be able to roll out all the sales with a little more time. Uh, I think everybody in the business on both sides of this business knows you're always scrambling. You're, you know, everything's almost um, always, there's always a last minute, um, component to everything you do, it'd be nice to have more time. I don't, I don't know how we would ever get more time, but that's how I would, that's one of the things I would love. I appreciate that. Beth, have you circled the, the, the Mars and, uh, and can we hear you again? I don't think you guys can hear me. 
It's worse Unfortunately, than Unfortunately, she is on the dark side. Uh, with that in mind, I'll just jump to our final question. Do you have any shout outs or parting shots, Larry? And perhaps you can speak for Beth as well. Maybe she can text it over to you while you're giving your answer and you can uh, do hers for her. Well, if it's shout outs, I would have to say we would, uh, you know, while we're a small department of three to four people, depending upon the year, uh, we can't do what we do without all of our co-workers at the Red Sox, which is, you know, hundreds of people without the support of um, John Henry, Tom Werner, Sam Kennedy, um, Ron Bumgarner, and many other people at the Red Sox, and also our partners at Live Nation New England, uh, Don Law and many others. Um, we, we, we have a team that is, and you mentioned Mike Marchetti. I think it was you that mentioned Mike Marchetti. Uh, Mike is one of the uh, best in the business, maybe the best, and, um, and we rely on him. We, we have a team um, at Fenway that is second to none, in my opinion, and that's why we're able to be successful. So I, I want to um, make a shout out to everybody we work uh, with. And, um, and also, I should mention all, I, I uh, should thank our families for putting up with us being here like 18, 19 hours a day all the time. When I say here, I mean at Fenway. So. Totally fair. Well, I appreciate that. Larry, Beth, you guys have been great. I thank you. I want to shout out both of you for the hospitality you've shown me and my family at the ballpark. Very much appreciate that. I also want to shout out again, Bobby Schneider, who made the initial introductions that connected me to you guys. I want to shout out to Mark Lev and the Fenway Sports Group. Again, big step in helping me uh, on the path. And I'm talking, this was 15 years back. I haven't talked to Mark in a long time. I'm not even sure if he's at Fenway Sports. Oh, he's still there. Yep. Oh, great. Well, I'd love to reconnect with him. I'd love to reconnect with others in Fenway Sports Group, figure out other ways we can move together, move, uh, do business together, moving past this COVID-19 and coming out the other side. To my co-hosts, as always, it's a pleasure. Kyle, Chris, Dallas, appreciate you guys. To our listeners, thank you as always for being with us. I hope you got as much out of this as I do. I, I'm definitely going to look for other people in sports to talk to because I love the crossover connections between the industries. It's great to have our first non-concert professionals. Obviously, you are also concert professionals, having been a part of some of the biggest touring productions in the world. But your perspective on baseball and on sports is extremely valuable. So thank you again to our listeners. You know where to find us online, HLUB Podcast on Instagram, hustlelikeyoubroke.com. Send us your questions. Until the next time, as I like to say, don't forget to wear your mask. And on that note, thank you all and good night.